Hello and welcome to the ESVS podcast, live from the ESVS annual meeting in Belfast. I am Susanne Stokmans and today I have with me Professor Bijan Modorai to talk about the recently published ESVS clinical practice guidelines on radiation safety. Hello, Professor Modorai. Hello, pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you. Uh, professor Modorai is a professor of vascular surgery at King's College London and Guy's and St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust. Besides his clinical practice, he leads a translational program of vascular research aimed at developing novel diagnostic and treatment strategies for vascular diseases. He is the chair of the ESVS Radiation Protection Guidelines, which was published in the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery in February of this year. Congratulations on this guideline, the first on the subject of radiation safety, written under the auspices of a vascular surgical society. Why do you think a guideline like this did not exist before? Thank you very much, uh, uh, Suzanne. I, I think that as time has gone by, our awareness as uh, vascular surgeons of the dangers of radiation exposure has increased. And uh, that's why colleagues have become increasingly interested in publishing our own dedicated guidelines that pertains to our uh, interventional procedures. And we know that the volume and complexity of these interventional procedures is increasing. And our younger uh, trainee colleagues and more uh, established uh, uh, attending consultant uh, interventionists uh, both groups are becoming increasingly concerned about the dangers of radiation exposure and that stimulated the society into commissioning these guidelines, which we are very grateful for. I can imagine. And I can uh, also imagine that writing a guideline from scratch was very challenging. Where did you start and how long did it take for this guideline to advance to its final version? This was indeed very challenging because there isn't a previous structure to build on as with uh, the majority of the guidelines that are being currently produced. So I'm incredibly grateful to the colleagues that worked on the committee to produce these guidelines. My co-chair, Professor Stefano Lon, and uh, a cohort of other colleagues that included uh, not just vascular surgeons, but radiation physicists, uh, a colleague from the UK Health Security Agency, so uh, quite a varied group of people, and including a trainee colleague that put these guidelines together, and it took a lot of hard work. We started in May 2019 and as I'm sure you're aware that the guidelines were published earlier this year but it's a piece of work that we're all very proud of. We think it's practical and we think it'll be a good guidance by for, for colleagues and for institutions alike uh, as we go forward. You are known for your interest and expertise in the field of complex endovascular aortic repair, which means that you spent a decent amount of time in the endovascular theater working with radiation. During your career in vascular surgery, what changes regarding the concern for radiation exposure and safety have you experienced? The first thing is that the awareness has increased, not just with the operators, but with the entire team that uh, we work with, including, for example, our anesthetic colleagues. We have become much more careful with uh, thinking about the exposure that we're getting uh, on a step-by-step -step basis as we go through 
uh, the case. Uh, the amount of personal protection that, that we use has increased and I can talk to you about lead guards a little bit later and some of the research that we've done that supports use of lead guards. Uh, ceiling mounted lead shields, we're using those a lot more judiciously and we report and record the exposure doses more stringently, I think, that, than we have done before. And we're, we're interested as operators to know what our dose is uh, and to monitor it as we go along. What methods are currently recommended for monitoring radiation exposure for both staff and patients in the endovascular operating room? Uh, so I think we all wear the standard TLD uh, dosimeters. Uh, but I think increasingly we're aware that we need a minute-by-minute minute, uh, method of knowing what we're exposed to so that we can perhaps alter our behavior during the case if we see that our exposures are, are, are higher than they ought to be. For example, if the C-arm is angulated and our exposure is increasing, we can do things to change that. And we can only do that if we have a live uh, reporting uh, dosimetry system that a lot of colleagues are, are using now. Um, so th th those, that's the one practical change that's, that's occurred. And I think we need to still build more evidence with prospective studies to show the value of using this method of um, uh, recording exposure rather than the traditional TLD dosimeters that get read you know, months after we've been exposed. Also, we need to keep an eye on uh, what's on the horizon. So biological methods of measuring exposure using cellular analysis, for example, and we've done some research on that. So I am a fan of us pursuing those methods as we go forward. And if we talk about patient exposure, should the endovascular surgeon inform the patients about potential stochastic and deterministic risks of radiation exposure as part of the preoperative informed consent? And if so, what risks should be explicitly mentioned? So the short answer is yes. So we commissioned, the, actually the first chapter of the radiation guidelines pertains to what the patient and public perception of these exposures are and our first recommendation uh, is uh, allied to this. So the group that we spoke to, members of the public, patients, they were quite clear that they do think we should report to them the fact that radiation exposure can possibly be associated with deleterious health effects and that this should be reported in plain language. They understand that uh, some of the evidence is inconclusive relating the radiation exposure to health problems, but nevertheless they want to know that there is an indication that, that, that there are risks and that they want the, the, the exposure to be justified. So they want to explain to them why it is that we have to carry out a procedure that involves radiation exposure. So that, that's quite clear. So I think we need to work on A, building the evidence, but meanwhile, while we do that, we need to be very transparent with our patients that there may be a risk and that these are the reasons why we think it's better for them to undergo a procedure that involves them being exposed to radiation. So that's, that's recommendation one as per patients and public. And if we talk about ourselves, what personal protection equipment should be used by medical staff during endovascular procedures to minimize their exposure to ionizing radiation? Yeah, so, so I think that's uh, a conscious decision that the operator needs to make and it needs to be done along with the institutions that provide this personal protection. That's one of the reasons we wrote these guidelines is an example. You know, this is a document made uh, as part of a consensus by the society. So it's quite powerful to take this to your institution and say, 
this is what a group of people that are knowledgeable in this area think. What should we use? I think, uh, you know, obviously lead protection, thyroid, involving the thyroid, the torso. I think the uh, left humerus should be uh, uh, protected. In ladies, the breast should be protected. We made recommendations for that. Um, we did a piece of research uh, a while back showing that if you wore leg lead, because remember the radiation source is underneath the table, so if you protect your legs with lead, that prevents DNA damage on your circulating lymphocytes. We showed that conclusively. So I think that uh, leg uh, protection is important, and we made a recommendation on that. But it's not just the personal protection, it's, it's the ceiling-mounted lead shields. They're very important to, to stop scatter exposure. And then, depending on whether your institution supports it or not, there are more expensive uh, um, uh, protection methods, such as the ceiling-mounted zero-gravity suit, for example, uh, that, that uh, are thought to offer more protection. But again, we need to study everything prospectively to prove the benefits of these technologies. And can you highlight some practical dose-reducing techniques that healthcare professionals should implement to limit radiation exposure during endovascular procedures? So remember the ALARA principles, as low as reasonably achievable. And the main ethos of this is time, distance and shielding. So as much as possible increase the distance between you and the radiation source, particularly when performing digital subtraction angiograms. That's when you get the highest amount of exposure. So minimize your digital subtraction angiograms. When you perform them, maximize your distance from the radiation source. Spend as little time with your foot on the pedal uh, when you're performing fluoroscopy uh, as possible. When you are performing fluoroscopy, remember that as soon as you angulate the C-arm, you increase the dose of exposure. So make sure that you spend as little time with the C-arm angulated as possible. And we've already talked about shielding, so uh, both personal and uh, 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 operating theater shielding needs to be maximized. So th those would be the key areas I would focus on. And how do advancements in imaging technology contribute to better dose optimization and safer endovascular procedures? Well, uh, you know, the, the imaging um, field is moving exponentially. So uh, we have uh, fusion imaging, for example, that allows uh, um, guidance that is free of fluoroscopy. Uh, and I think that's an invaluable adjunct, particularly for complex aortic procedures. It's important to note, however, that, that work with imaging starts outside of the operating theater, and we've made a recommendation based on that. So multiplanar reconstruction software allows you to predict the angles that you need to have the CR mat for maximal visualization of structures. And it's really important to do that before you get into the operating theater, because then you don't waste time and radiation trying to get the optimal angle. So preoperatively, guidance intraoperatively with, uh, for example, fusion imaging, intravascular ultrasound. I think that's a radiation-free uh, modality that uh, will be increasingly used. And finally, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, uh, colleagues are, are working hard towards radiation-free uh, systems for interventions such as FORS and uh, electromagnetic guidance with IOPS. And that, that will uh, no doubt uh, take off more and more in the coming years.
And a solid understanding of radiation physics and biology is crucial for healthcare providers working in the endovascular theater to effectively manage radiation exposure. However, multiple reports suggest a knowledge gap related to the principles of radiation safety among medical professionals, especially trainees. It's also known that within European countries, training regulations differ and not every country demands a mandatory radiation safety course during vascular surgery training. How do you envision the integration of radiation safety training in certification exams, enhancing the overall radiation safety culture among medical professionals? Again, we, we thought this was a very important aspect. So we, we again started the, the guidelines with an early chapter that outlined the different physics parameters associated with radiation exposures. The colleagues had a reference area to go to to understand some of these terms. We've also got a chapter on uh, training and certification. I think this, this awareness is a, a huge part of saving radiation dose for yourself and for your patients. So I think that we need overarching bodies, uh, perhaps overseen by the European society, that uh, decide on what is the optimal training and validation and even going as far as deciding what is a reasonable amount of radiation exposure for a particular procedure, so the so-called diagnostic um, uh, reference levels of, of exposure. So I think we need to work towards standardization as much as possible and keep in mind that you know, the, the, the younger colleagues need to be uh, taught and certified early about uh, the do's and don'ts of radiation exposure and to have that repeated um, at intervals to make sure that all that knowledge is fresh in our minds. How can institutions ensure that healthcare professionals consistently apply their radiation safety training in real-world clinical scenarios? So I think each institution has to have a radiation safety officer and most institutions I would hope do have that, who, who keeps an overview, regular monitoring of doses and reporting of dangerously high doses is essential and I think that uh, uh, radiation safety officers also need to look at the both personal and operating theatre protection that we use. Uh, to make sure, you know, it's beholden on the institutions to make sure that they provide optimal protection, not just for the permanent staff, but also for the trainees that often rotate through hospitals and don't have the benefit of personalized protection like uh, the more senior colleagues do. And could you elaborate on the potential risk associated with radiation exposure during pregnancy? And what would you advise pregnant healthcare professionals who are involved in endovascular procedures to ensure the safety of the fetus? Okay, I think it's firstly important to point out that, that uh, all the studies show that the exposure to the fetus is low. Uh, so so I, I think that colleagues should not be overly concerned. But again, you know, the, the highest risk is during organogenesis and the first trimester. As you go into the second and third trimester, the, the risk reduces. But nevertheless, you know, we have to assume that there is a risk there. The exposure needs to be below one millisievert. And the key to that is that as soon as the colleagues know that they're pregnant, to declare that uh, to the institution, to the radiation safety officer. And every institution should have very well 
documented um, practices and pathways for maximum protection of, uh, uh, of our colleagues. And what future developments or advancements do you anticipate in reducing radiation exposure in interventional procedures? So we've already touched on the fact that we're working towards radiation-free uh, technologies and I think this will become the focus in the coming years as uh, the methods we have for registering the preoperative imaging uh, for intraoperative guidance improve, the, the catheters and wires that we're using will improve, you know, we'll even likely have a hollow lens type uh, projection of structures in front of our eyes. So I predict uh, a, a, a bright uh, future and that brightness being achieved without radiation exposure. And do you believe that there will be an, a, a time when vascular intervention occur in a radiation-free zone completely? I firmly believe that. I don't know whether it will be in the next five years or ten years, but I think at one point we will look back and think that the way that we perform these procedures these days with the radiation that we use was very archaic. And you can see that the technology and its development will accelerate quite quickly in the coming years. So it will be um, uh, good and, and uh, satisfying to watch that happen. Exciting times are coming. Uh, thank you for making the time today to discuss radiation safety with me and our listeners. It has been very helpful and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Uh, it's my pleasure and it's really encouraging to see that at these kind of conferences and with these kind of podcasts we're in improving the awareness of radiation safety. So thank you for asking me. Uh, we will be back soon with more ESVS podcasts. Please follow the ESVS socials to be informed about new releases. Thank you for listening and talk to you soon.